Gridiron Growl Podcast from Chop Talk with your host, David Soderquist and Michael Pepper. Welcome, everyone, to episode number four of the Gridiron Growl podcast. On this week's episode of the Gridiron Growl, we have none other than Will Miles from Gators Breakdown and ReadandReaction.com as we discuss everything Florida football-related in this year's coming SEC-only schedule. And we also will have Ben Murphy, sports anchor and reporter at First Coast News, NBC 12, ABC 25 in Jacksonville, Florida. And we will be discussing how the NCAA rules have changed over the past couple of years and discussing students' reactions to football cancellations in the Big Ten and Pac-12 and where the NCAA can improve in the future with these decisions. We got some pretty big names on here today, Mike. Yeah, we've got a great show coming up for you. I'm pretty excited about it. How about yourself? I am uber excited. Uh, So you've had a good week this week? I understand you and your wife uh, had a little reason to celebrate, right? Yeah, uh, my wife, she's, uh, you're sober, uh, no alcohol, nothing, one year sober, and also her birthday was just a couple days ago, so she turns 32, and we did a little bit of celebrating sober-wise, so that that was fun. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I was, uh, this week I was feeling a little bit generous, and, and one of my neighbors is, is a, an elderly woman, and she had to have her gutters cleaned out. And I started that project with a lot of enthusiasm and, and feeling really good about myself. But, you know, I found that as a, as the project uh, went on, I was actually uh, feeling a little bit sad. Why is that? Well, she let me use her ladder and it just got me thinking, all I have is a step ladder because my real ladder left when I was a kid. Michael Pfeffer with the joke of the week. Well, Mike, our first guest today is a well-known reporter, especially in the Jacksonville area. His name is Ben Murphy. He's a sports anchor and reporter at First Coast News, NBC 12, and ABC 25 in Jacksonville, Florida. And he had some really interesting takes on the NCAA and the quote-unquote governing bodies and the cancellation of the Big Ten and the Big 12 and brought up some really interesting points this week. So here's a short clip of Ben Murphy discussing this issue earlier on last week. You type up an important email, hit send, immediate response. Hi, thanks for the email. I'm out of the office until. You know what's in the NCA's mission statement here? I'm going to read it to you. I don't want to get it wrong. Encourage the development of leadership skills for student athletes. When it was time for the NCA to show those leadership skills firsthand. Yeah, what? Yeah, you, you say something? Because the, quote, governing body of college sports doesn't actually govern anything, the decisions were left up to each individual conference. Of the five major conferences, two opted to not have fall sports. Three said, let's work through this. This is not a spiel on if I believe if it's safe for student-athletes to be playing fall sports or not. Because the decision-making by the conferences who opted out of playing fall sports had absolutely nothing to do with that. With everything on the line, governing bodies didn't want to deal with exactly with what's happening. Players banding together, unions putting the power in the players' hands. Riddle me this. Students in the Pac-12, Big Ten schools will return to campus some as soon as next week. Safe for those kids? If you go to Michigan State, you got this in your email. Hey, what do you think? 
What are your thoughts about playing intramural sports? You think they're going to be testing the average Joe's flag football team weekly? If you play football or any other fall sport at Iowa, your career, your season is probably over. You go down the street in the same state, you're going to have access to more medical attention and testing because you have a game to get ready for. The Big Ten commissioner will have no teams playing sports this fall under his watch, but his son will get to strap it up on Saturdays in the fall because he goes to a school in the SEC. Did you go to college? Do you know what the kids who don't have games on Saturday night will be doing? Safety's not the word that comes to mind. If canceling fall sports was about the kids' safety, then let's practice what we preach. We're living in a pandemic, one of mass hypocrisy. I'm Ben Murphy. Oh, some pretty interesting takes right there in that short clip, and I'm very interested to dig into this more with Ben. Are you ready, Mike? Absolutely. Let's get to it. Let's go. We have Ben Murphy, sports anchor and reporter at First Coast News, NBC 12, ABC 25 in Jacksonville, Florida. Ben, thanks for joining us today on the Gridiron Growl podcast from Chomp Talk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, you had posted a video earlier uh, uh, on Twitter about five days ago. Uh, a lot of students have taken to social media about wanting to play football, even though their quote-unquote governing bodies have said no football this year. And in one of your videos, you elaborated on this. Uh, what do you ultimately think should have or could have been done to avoid all this debacle? Well, I think the first uh, situation is the in this situation is that the NCAA was not prepared for something like this. Um, and they, they got exposed for not having a governing body to be able to vote on something like this. So they basically pass it off to a secondary um, secondary council being the individual conferences. And, and that, that in turn becomes political because uh, college football and college sports based on the conferences are so regionalized. So we see, we see a certain parts of the country, if you were to break it down by a map, act one way um, in comparison to another part of the country, which acted a different way. Um, and I, I think I, I, as, as much as it should be about the player's safety, this issue turned into something that wasn't about the player's safety because if it was, they would have made a different decision. Um, and it's unfortunate what happened in some parts of the uh, – some parts of the college football landscape right and and as you said before like like it, it could have just they could have just left it to where if the players wanted to opt out they could and then if the players wanted to play that they, they could come and play um and we discussed a couple of times uh with with players and all that it's like you have less of a chance of a player getting sick if they're on a field with probably nobody in the crowd i don't know some some schools are now saying 20 percent, but you know, you have less of a chance of a kid getting sick going out there and playing football as opposed to being off the field, going to parties or going to social gatherings or things of that nature. And uh, I, I just didn't understand the decision. Yeah. The other thing to look at, too, is in hypothetically worst case scenario, a kid does test positive. At least you know where he stands because you do have these testing, um, uh, these, uh, these testing procedures where they're getting tested three, four times a week. And if the kid does get it, um, statistically, um, they're 
statistically they're likely going to be okay. And and when you have a season underway that they are providing this testing, it's easier to know and understand that he has it and isolate and give the kid the best medical care he can have on campus than if they're just freewheeling either back at home or or running around like you said going to parties it's it's when you have a season and you're able to test these kids now you've got 100 150 bodies on campus that you know where everyone stands if you don't have a season and you're not providing these daily tests um they could have it and they could be spreading it but if you know a kid has it and you're able to test constantly you know where the kid is at and you can you can isolate him and keep it keep him from spreading it to others around him, whether it's a family member that's a concern or other students on campus. Um, you are able to basically put him on lockdown because you know that he's at it and you know you can isolate him. Right. Uh, ben, shifting focus to, to the players who who are in conferences that will participate, at least up you know to this point, uh, in a college football season, uh, a lot of the talking heads and, and pundits have spent the majority of the offseason hyping guys like Kellen Mond and Jamie Newman up to be the be- the next big thing uh, in the SEC. So my first question is, what do these guys bring to their respective teams that makes them deserving of this hype? And second, where would Kyle Trask fit into that conversation? Uh, do you think we could see a Joe Burrow-like leap from him? Um, I, I think the thing about guys like Jamie Newman, um, and I guess if you want to go Kellen Mond or Sam Ellinger or whoever the, the system may be is one, a lot of hype comes from one, the talent around you. So if the case is the case is Georgia. They've, they've got a stout defense. The team is probably going to win eight, nine, ten games. When you're the quarterback, no matter what your average play looks like, if your team is winning eight, nine games, there's going to be a spotlight around you. The case is um, kid at Ole Miss, um, who's an athlete, but it doesn't have as much talent around him. There's hype around him. Or um, trying to think of another example, Sam Ellinger. And because they were highly recruited, their name has been out there since they were in high school. Um, for Kyle Trask, he was a career backup. And here's the thing about Florida um, and Florida under Mullen. There's going to be production at the quarterback spot no matter who's playing quarterback as long as Mullen is the operator um, and running the system. I, he's proven it time and time again with different quarterbacks. I think you can list off, oh, he's coached Tim Tebow, Alex Smith, um, whatever. The list goes on and on. I think what you look at with Urban Meyer, not Urban Meyer, Dan Mullen's offense and, and what he's been able to do with the quarterback position. Look at what Nick Fitzgerald did from the time Mullen was on campus to the time Mullen left for Florida. Significant drop-off. Um, right. Fitz, Fitz might have actually gotten drafted fairly high had Mullen stayed throughout his entire career. Um, I think I think you look at what the system he puts in place, it's very simple for quarterbacks. It's, um, it's, it's going to be one where Kyle Trask is going to produce numbers and Really, his Heisman odds or his ho- or his hype is just going to be a matter a matter of how many games Florida wins because there's going to be production at the quarterback spot of Florida. Sure, I think that's an interesting point too because uh, if you look back over Mullen's career, 
he's done it with a variety of different style quarterbacks as well. I mean, sure, his his wheelhouse is the Tim Tebow, Nick Fitzgerald, you know, that uh, dual threat kind of guy. But, uh, you know, he's also done it with guys like Alex Smith, like you mentioned before, and, and Kyle Trask, who are a little more pure pocket passers. Um, so do you think that that's a testament directly to his system or, or just his ability to uh, really coach a quarterback up to, to be the best that they can be? I think it's hard for us on the outside to know what he's saying in the meetings and the quarterback room and, and the walkthroughs. But I think what we can see and what we can kind of break down is what is on the field. And um, he's, he's, he's a great play caller. Um, he, he keeps defenses on the toes. He makes the read simple for the quarterback. Um, I think we saw it with Felipe Franks, the progression just throughout a single season on, on what kind of reads he was able to make and, 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 what he was able to walk him through. I think it's a combination of the both. I think you got to give a kid confidence. But another thing is, is if you go through and look at the progression of what Mullen has done with quarterbacks, I, I want to say Tebow's probably the youngest kid he's ever had start. Generally, he, he lets these kids get two, three years into the program before they even get on the field. Right. Right, and uh, you, you mentioned Felipe Franks. It's it, in, in the Nick's fi- the Nick Fitzgerald situation. Also, uh, you've seen the drop off. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to automatically assume Felipe Franks is going to have a drop off at Arkansas. But the interesting matchup this whole year, uh, out of all the matchups in the SEC only schedule, is going to be Felipe Franks coming back to Gainesville, but on the other side of the football. And we'll get to see in that game if you know, obviously, if Dan Mullen's coaching was a lot better or was it obviously Felipe Franks but Felipe Franks is also on an Arkansas team that doesn't have as much talent as Florida that he had the talent at Florida so it's going to be an interesting game to watch yeah no without a doubt what week is that game uh do you know what week that is that is I think that's in the latter half of the year yeah. I know it's in the second half so either I mean Arkansas has got to go through the gauntlet um so at that point that that Arkansas team may be depleted as well which is an, a, another thing to look for. It's, I mean, it's it's going to be very interesting to yes to watch Felipe Franks from back to Florida. If if Mullen ends up being the guy long term, doesn't get to the NFL, and he's the one who gets another uh, piece of trophy, piece of crystal in, in a case, you're going to have to give a lot of credit to Felipe Franks and give a lot of credit to Kyle Trask. Um, down the line of, of what they were able to do and, and stay with the program and right the ship and, and get Florida the ball rolling because those first couple of years when you've got a new head coach is tough, um, but you've got to have success on the field to get the ball rolling and get recruiting rolling and, and everything else that comes with it. And these two guys got, got Florida to a, a couple New Year's Six Bowl games and um, it'll be weird watching Franks playing another jersey, but he'll always go down um, – with with a with a positive outlook in my mind of what he was able to at least hang on and and kind of uh, fight through some demons at Florida. I, I couldn't agree with that more. And and you know, uh, speaking of possible crystal in the future, uh, you know, the NCAA has actually already said there won't be a national championship for this season. Uh, understandable, but uh, if there were going to be a college football playoff, who would your preseason predictions be and what seed would you have for those four teams um 
I think you go Clemson. I think the SEC. If are you, is this? If you were saying if we were going to have it excluding the, the Big Ten and Pac-12 or including those conferences, yes, exactly, just the uh, conferences that are playing. I, I think what you got to do now is look and see that the SEC is probably going to probably going to beat each other up now that they've got to play ten games aside. Um, with the with the plus one being the SEC championship game, so eleven games of SEC football, that is a grind, and it'll be very interesting to see how much the, I guess the, the committee weighs in that being a strength of schedule without having a uh, um, kind of a mark or a benchmark to rank teams since they won't be playing each other via other conferences. Um, so it's almost a little bit of assumption that the SEC teams are better when when we go throughout these rankings and that the conference is deeper. Um, at the top, obviously, the ACC is just as good as the SEC. Clemson can play in the SEC. Clemson's proven they can they can run with with the big boys, but the depth in that conference is not there, and it, you see it as soon as you get past Clemson. Um, same goes with the Big Twelve, and and really, I can't even say that Oklahoma can run with the SEC for a ten game slate because they get they get taken to the shed every time they step into the college football playoff. Um, so I, I think it'll be very interesting. I think you got to put Oklahoma and Clemson in because of their strength of schedule. Um, they both have very talented quarterbacks and, and Trevor Lawrence and Spencer Rattler, who's going to step into a very quarterback friendly system. So I think you put those two teams in and then I think you take the SEC teams, um, obviously the conference winner, but what becomes very interesting is if Georgia, were to beat Florida and have another loss on the schedule or vice versa and Florida beats Georgia and Florida has another loss on the schedule. Then you go into an SEC championship situation where it's Alabama versus a one-loss SEC team and let's say Alabama wins that game, goes into the playoffs. Do you take a two-loss SEC Florida or Georgia or do you take the one-loss SEC Florida or Georgia who sat out the SEC game? So I think you look at Alabama – as the one seed, Clemson two, Oklahoma three, and then do they want to have a rematch of Georgia and Alabama or Florida and Alabama? I I think it's going to be very interesting to get so, to. So the it almost four, would, would end up Bama. being like uh, LSU versus Alabama national championship uh, a few years back. Yeah, I just think the committee has is going to have trouble if there were to be a four team playoff of putting a one versus four and ha- basically having it as an SEC championship rematch. Cause Georgia has to play Alabama in the regular season. So if Florida gets the SEC title and ends up being the team out of the East and they'll both have played Alabama. So one of those two teams, both of the teams would be a rematch either way. So I guess it wouldn't, it wouldn't really matter. I guess you, you would favor the team who got to the SEC title game in um, the head to head. So I would, I would go uh, best team out of the West and in, in the SEC being, um, in the playoff, best team out of the East in the SEC being in the playoff, and then Oklahoma and Clemson, and then obviously one and four both being SEC slots with whoever won the SEC title game being the one and whoever came up short being the four. That makes sense to me. Yeah, and uh, just just this year so much in college football has changed. You know, you mentioned how how is it going to work this year? I, I even heard a mention of like an 18 playoff, but I, I don't even know if that's going to happen or, or I, it, it's rumored, but I don't even think that's going to happen. But so much 
this year has changed in the past two years with like transfer like transfer rules eligibility rules and now with the pandemic student athletes get an extra year of eligibility no matter what uh how do you see this certain rule affecting certain situations around all college football because i mean in, in this situation like I'll, I'll bring up one scenario we have kyle trask and emory jones obviously is the backup say kyle trask has a good year but he decides to stay and not go to the nfl um a lot of people are saying, well, Emory Jones might transfer or something like that. I, I, I honestly I honestly think he would stay anyway. It's just my opinion. But how do you see this rule affecting certain situations around like all of college football? It's it's interesting because here's how I view this. If you've got uh, if you've got um, a, a kid who yeah, the numbers are going to be a problem, and and I think they'll find a way to work that out. Schools have these schools that are playing power five football have enough money, but I, I think if you've got kids who are good enough, like if you're looking at Florida as an example, if you've got kids who said, "Oh, this kid or X Y Z can come back next year because they've got another year eligibility," if they weren't good enough to go to the league at at Florida or Georgia or Alabama, you probably don't want them coming back anyways. Um, because you've got somebody behind them, the way that these schools are recruiting, at least Florida and, uh, is starting to get there, that someone behind them who's who's coming into a freshman, sophomore, junior position uh, as they make their way through the program, who's, who's probably going to step in and, and have a shot at getting to the league. So if you look at the situation in Kyle Trask, if Kyle Trask has a good year, he's gone. Um, I, I think if he has the potential to get drafted at any point, there's no point for him to come back and – and ride out another season. Um, if he were to hypothetically, I, I, I don't see. I, I mean, to be honest, the way college football is and the way the landscape is, there's a job out there for someone. And I would, I, I, with Anthony Richardson approaching on his heels, I would see Emory Jones leaving. If that were the case, if Kyle Trask was good enough to come back and again be the starter, um, I think then he's gone for the league, anyways. Um, but in that situation, I, I, it would, yeah, it would be interesting. I would, I would bet on Emory leaving at that point but I, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with the numbers but again kids who come back I think it would be more of like let's say Brenton Cox it would be more impactful for teams of if oh Brenton Cox he got hurt week one before practice this year and wasn't able to play this year but doesn't really have much tape and while he may be talented enough right now for what we're seeing in camp for him to go to the league, that's not out there yet. Um, so it would be it would be more of a situation that teams would benefit for guys like that who maybe have already burned a medical red shirt or need another year of eligibility or have been sitting behind someone. Like if, if Franks was still around last year and Kyle Trask didn't get the reins and Trask won another year of eligibility, then it might have been beneficial. But... Um, Again, if a, if a kid's not good enough to go to the to the league from Florida on this new year of eligibility, you're probably going to want the guy behind him to come come and play because that generally in, in on the depth chart over the course of three or four years, Florida's sending somebody to the league from just about every position. Right. It is interesting to think about, though, because I, I was joking with David before uh, we made this call about uh, I think Kyle Trask in this situation, if he decided to stay, uh, it would be like his 12th year of eligibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. Close to it. 
And speaking of that too, I didn't think about this. Uh, you can waive that this year. You can waive that four games, and then you waste you waste a year of eligibility. You can waive that off because now kids that are um, you know not that aren't originally starters can now play every game this year and still get that extra year of eligibility. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does with Anthony Richardson because physically, you 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 saw. Was it two years ago? He used they used Emory Jones in four games or less um, to, to ensure that he had another year. I want to say, um, but physically to run the offense that Mullen wants to run, physically Anthony Richardson is a better fit for his scheme. Um, Mullen likes to run quarterbacks downhill, um, and he likes to run them between the tackles. I mean, he, we've seen, we've seen Emory come in and Emory is more of a, a, a spread quarterback that if we're going to, if they're going to run a dual kind of a dual option type type deal with a quarterback, if you see maybe some more AR than you do or as much as you do Emory Jones because of the physicality that he brings to the line. I mean, the, the kid is built like a junior or senior. Um, I want to say he weighs two thirty, two forty. Yeah, I was about to say he, he's, he's already big. got he's he's already got the size and speed on Emory. And if you're going to use him as a if you're going to use a quarterback in a running situation, why why risk throwing Emory into a situation where he could potentially get hurt if he's the better passer now, when you can get the freshman reps and not have to worry about the four games and he's more of the physical runner anyways. Um, they did it with the leak Tebow situation. I, I wouldn't be shocked to see AR getting some reps early just because of the way he runs and the way he's built. Um, you've got a weapon in there, and a, it saves Emory getting some some risk if they're going to bring a quarterback in to run. Why not? Why not let the kid get some reps in early, especially where there's no playoff this year, and and if you get up on a few teams, get him in the game. I think that's an interesting point. Um... You know, AR's definitely got the the size, the speed, and uh, when you were talking about that, I, that was immediately what came to mind was the the way that they used Tebow and Leak back then. Uh, but looking at what we've got on the roster this year, uh, what do you see as the greatest strengths, weaknesses, and question marks for this team? I I think the I still think the offensive line's got something to prove. Um, but granted, I've always said they're not going to get any worse than it was last year in the run game. Um, so I think they take a step up. I think I think the development in the offseason should help them and benefit them a little bit. I, man, I, uh, everyone everyone kind of said, oh, they lose Zaniga, Grenard off the edge. There is going to be – I think that I think the defensive line is going to be deep, and I think the defensive line is going to be strong, and, and the ability to get the quarterback is going to be – um, is going to be stout again this year. I'm excited to watch the secondary Kyrie Elam uh, paired with Wilson on the outside. Um, but again, if if you get a if you get a you get a, you get these guys healthy, I think the receiving group is is a, is a strong point. So I'd say something to watch for. If I'm concerned, it's the offensive line in the run game because guilty until proven innocent with those guys. And if I had to pick a strength probably the ability to get to the quarterback. I think they're going to surprise us this year. 
what, what do you think of the move from uh, for Trey Dean uh, over to safety? Who man, I'm not sure he's going to last. Uh, the I I wouldn't be surprised if someone pushes him um, on the depth chart. It Trey Dean it has been kind of an anomaly coming in. I thought he was I was excited about him, um, but hopefully this new this new start is is fresh for him and um, good for the good for the defense going forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch how that progresses. Yeah, and I've heard some good footnotes from him from practice as well, from trading, but it's, like I said, it's there's practice and then there's an actual game. Yeah. So, um, anyway, Ben, thanks for joining us on the Gridiron Growl podcast. Uh, tell us, everybody, where they can find you on social media and other platforms. Yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter or Facebook with the at sign Ben Murphy TV. With the check mark. <laughs> with the check mark. <laughs> All right, Ben. Thanks a lot for joining us on the Gridiron Growl Podcast. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Enjoyed it. You want to rock out this football season? Check out the band Felicity on Spotify, Apple Music, the iTunes Store, Amazon Music, YouTube, Pandora, and other music platforms. Also, check them out on Twitter at WeAreFelicity. Felicity, rocking out the state of Florida since 2014. The Gridiron Growl Podcast and Chomp Talk would like to thank the staff at the Tower Square UPS store in Gainesville for their sponsorship of ChompTalk.com. For all your printing and shipping needs, make sure to check out the UPS store in Tower Square. And that was Ben Murphy, sports anchor and reporter at First Coast News NBC 12 at ABC 25 in Jacksonville. And uh, Mikey touched on a lot of good points, especially about the uh, eligibility rules this year. Uh, yeah, I think the, the uh, lack of the four-game limitation is a wrinkle that uh, could bring about a lot of very interesting consequences and benefits. Um, I'm especially excited to see what Dan Mullen has in store for that. They, you know, he mentioned Anthony Richardson uh, specifically, and I think that he's absolutely right. That is a excellent opportunity for the young guy to get reps and he's physically uh, he, I mean, physically, he's ready. Uh, learning the offense and and having the uh, passing development, maybe still needing to be worked on. But uh, as far as the downhill running, we could, I could definitely see him in a Tebow role to, you know, Kyle Trask's Chris Leak or or Emory Jones Chris Leak. Yeah, and it, you you mentioned that it, it, it's crazy because now even with other teams, say like Georgia's and Tennessee's and just any other team. You might even see some surprise players out there that you wouldn't ever see that's probably second or third on the chart. Uh, maybe in uh, probably when it's like more of a, a blowout scene or somebody gets hurt, but you will probably start seeing some of those third-string quarterbacks starting to get reps and things like that because they don't have to worry about the four-game rule anymore. Now you this, this is a free year of eligibility, so all the options are on the table for any student-athlete that's playing this year. Definitely. Um, you know, and, and I think that a lot of the coaches are going to take advantage of that. Um, especially, you know, since players also have the uh, uh, option to opt out of the season, you know, if, if we start running into programs where players uh, just before the start of the season decide, you know what, I'm, I'm just not going to risk it. This gives them another option. Okay. We can fill that gap with, with this guy who was going to red shirt, but, we can still redshirt him next year and he can play every game this year. 
Uh, it gives the, the entire coaching staff a lot more freedom with their rosters. And I also thought about something else too. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people talking about a running back depth. So you got Lorenzo Lingard. He's 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 got his waiver. He's able to play this year along with Damian Pierce. And now, since we have an extra year of eligibility, so this year you have time to recruit and get more depth. Like every team has time to get more depth with an extra year of eligibility. If if but now, obviously, like we just discussed, if you you have a really good year, you're going to go to the NFL, uh, it, depending on, you know, circumstances. But Unless of, you want to be the only 12-year uh, <laughs> eligible player in, in college football. Was it uh, Kyle Trask and Andre DeBose? Wasn't Andre DeBose here for about seven years or something like that? He was. It seemed like he uh, he grew up before our eyes, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll tell you what, though. I miss him in that return game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he he and uh, Brandon James, uh, my two all-time favorite returners. Yeah, nobody can compare to Brandon James though. Brandon James, uh, yeah, he, he's number one. But but Andre Debose was was pretty special too. Right, and uh, we talked about Pro Football Focus. Uh, you know how they have Kyle Trask. He's like ranked number forty-nine below a lot of quarterbacks and a lot of players. And it's just it's baffling to see, especially after the year that he had had. And uh, was and and I'll I'll even say this and and I I don't want to make excuses but you know without a, a a missed holding call into that end zone against that LSU game that LSU game could have been a little bit different too but you know calls get missed in every game I don't like to complain about them if they get missed they just get missed it's really a it's kind of a lame excuse I mean it it really it is an excuse but it's a lame excuse to say, oh, well, we lost this game because the ref didn't call this. If the ref doesn't call it, he doesn't call it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think regardless of any call that was missed or, or not, you know, uh, you look at what Kyle Trask did last season, his numbers are impressive for a full season body of work. But here is a guy that third week of the season is thrust in right at the end of the third quarter. Um and he still put up those numbers, numbers that were better than most quarterbacks in the country who played an entire season. Uh, so it, it is a little bit baffling that they would have him at number 49. Uh, is he a completed project? No, he, he still has some things he could work on. But, uh, you know, just like I asked uh, Ben, I, I think that when you're looking at the new crop of quarterbacks that are coming into the SEC – and what they've accomplished uh, up to this point, Kyle Trask has a great argument for being number one on that list. Um, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see. I really do believe that we could see uh, a very Joe Burrow-like leap from Kyle Trask this season. Right, and uh, earlier on in the uh, the year, I had uh, I had made a chart comparing Kyle Trask to the quarterbacks for the past 10 years, and he blows all of them out of the water. Uh, obviously, I added Tim Tebow to this. To be, it, obviously, it wasn't the past decade because Tim Tebow was back in 06, 07, 08, but I added him just for just for fun, just just to show how good Tim Tebow was. But uh, Kyle Trask, man, he ended the year with a 66.8% completion rating, 8.8 uh, yards per attempt, averaged 206.8 yards. That's that's pretty good for a quarterback that never started in high school and you know it's his 
he comes in in a Kentucky game after Felipe Franks gets hurt, gets thrown to the Wolves, and he, he has this kind of production. It's, it'll be interesting to see what kind of production Kyle Trask produces this year. It will. And, you know, on the flip side to the pro football focus ranking that he got, uh, he is getting recognized in a lot of these watch lists for, for offensive and quarterback awards. Right. And it's like I said, we'll have to see this year. I'm actually excited for Kyle Trask because it could either, I've seen this go with quarterbacks. It, they can either get better or stay the same. And even if Kyle Trask was to stay the same, you still get good production out of Kyle Trask. So I'm actually excited to see where Kyle Trask and what, how he steps up. Now, the quarterbacks less likely to be worse their next year, but I've seen it happen too. But they're more likely to either be the same or improve. So I'm interested to see what Kyle Trask can do this year as a quarterback, and it, it makes me excited because even like say even if say he stayed the same went on the same like the same trail he was going on last year he's still that's very productive it is very productive and and you know the evidence would suggest that he would actually show improvement um just looking at dan mullen's track record uh first year quarterbacks versus their second year um in just about every case there is a marked improvement there right and combined with a running game who knows what could happen? Uh, yeah, if we, if we can get a running game going this season, then uh, yeah, that's just going to open things up all the more for the passing attack. Right, and it's like Ben said, you can't get any worse. The offensive line can't get any worse than like it was last year. Yeah, I think what what was their final ranking? It was like 120th last oh, season? Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. I think it was like 120th or something like that. It it, it was pretty bad. It was oh like out of 128, I think it was like 121. Yeah. It, it, you can't get much worse than than they were in the rushing attack. And, you know, I, I thought that was really an interesting thing because most of the time when you have a young and inexperienced offensive line, they do pretty well at the running, the rush blocking. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the pass blocking that, that they usually struggle with. And they actually did really well blocking for Kyle Trask. Thank, thank God. Uh, but uh yeah, they, they got no kind of push off the line to be able to open up holes for the running games. Yeah, and uh, you spoke of that. Uh, if you looked at many times when Emory Jones was in the game last year, they actually blocked pretty well for Emory Jones when he was running. And I think the reason why they were able to block really well is because teams were on their heels, not knowing whether Emory Jones was going to pass or run. So actually tricking the defense a little bit as well kind of helped in that running game when Emory Jones was on the field. And on the flip side of that, they pretty much knew Kyle Trask is not going to run the ball. So Right. So it, 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 we're looking into offensive line production, and it may obviously not even really be that. It could just be the fact that they are expecting the pass, So or, or, if, or if they're going to hand it off to the running back, they're more prepared for it as they would be with like a dual-threat quarterback out there. Certainly will be interesting to watch this season. I a little bit encouraged by the comments from Dan Mullen uh, in his press conference saying that he's seen some really good things from the offensive line, but you know, it's kind of one of those things is it, is it, and he touched on this as well. Is it that they're really good or is it that the other position's really bad Uh, based on what Ben said uh, and, and my own observations, I think that I would tend to lean more towards they have shown a lot of improvement 
because the defensive line very well could be a strength of this team. It could be, especially, you know, we, we talked about Elijah Conliffe being injured. Now you you throw a monster like Gervon Dexter in there that could potentially start, but he's definitely going to get more reps now because of that. And the good part about that too, him being a freshman and the extra year of eligibility, this is just all experience for him. And, yeah. and the other freshmen too. Yeah. And it's a win-win. Right. Now you were talking about the uh, offensive line ranking. Their uh, their rush ranking last year was 122 out of 128. Okay. So yeah, I was I was close. You were <laughs> slightly closer. I I knew we were in the 120 somewhere because I remember um, looking that up a while back. So. Well, that was a lot of great points. Uh, great conversation with Ben Murphy right there. Up next, we've got another great interview uh, from. Gators Breakdown and ReadandReaction.com. My former co-host of Own the Fourth Quarter, Will Miles. I'm very excited about this. Very happy to have you here, Will. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's exciting to to have new podcasts in the Gator space, and uh, you know, happy to help out. Well, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, you know, so what's been going on with you and, and the family during this crazy uh, COVID time? Yeah, you know, I mean, I live up in Philadelphia, so we got hit a little bit harder earlier on, and everything got shut down. But we are we are recovering at this point up in up in Pennsylvania, and uh, you know, kids are playing a lot of baseball. They moved the baseball season back from April to uh, to July, so we've been out there molten on the fields. <laughs> it's been ninety five degrees most of the time when we've been out there, but uh, but the boys love playing. Actually, my daughter plays softball too, so we're out there a lot. So that's that's really what's been going on is just work, and then uh, you know, thankfully, still have a job. <laughs> Unlike you know, obviously, a lot of people have had some struggles with that. So thankfully, still have employment, and then, me, and then just playing, and then just playing baseball or teaching my kids to play baseball along the way. Well, thank God for, for blessings like that and, and being able to still uh, enjoy those little moments with your family. So, Yeah, absolutely. It's it's scary time, but, uh, you know, obviously we're all getting through it together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good to be on here to talk with you guys. So uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you and I have talked a lot about recruiting in the past and Dan Mullen, and, and I think that you've, you've brought up some pretty – solid evidence with the numbers. It's difficult to argue. Uh, when you look at whether you have to have five-star talent or, or three-star talent and just a really great developer, uh, I, I think that I'm somewhere in the middle with that, that argument, but you've presented a really compelling case showing the uh, pattern of talent ranking for each of the past several championship teams, and it shows that you know, even if Dan Mullen's able to get the absolute most out of a three-star, he probably has to do a little bit better than that to consistently contend for championships. So I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are on the recent commitments from Palmetto and what that means moving forward. Do you think that's a, a momentum shift for the program as a whole, or is this an anomaly? Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I, I think it's a multifaceted answer. So um, anybody who's listened to the stuff that I've talked about or that I've shown on my website, you know, they, they understand that there's a numerical, there's a numerical probability every time you bring in a, a recruit. And so if you bring in a five-star recruit or a guy who's ranked in the top 15, the guy makes it to the NFL like 80% of the time. 
And then that drops off to 60% of the time for, you know, even the low five-star guys who are like 15th to 30th. And then, you know, by the time you get to like beyond the top 100, it's basically kind of a crapshoot for all the four stars. You know, it's about 20% of the time, which means you need, in order to have an NFL quality roster, you got to have a lot of four stars on the unit in order to have an NFL quality roster because only 20% 20 of those guys are going to go in the NFL. So in a normal situation where you've got, you know, where, where you've got four classes and you can sign 25 guys a class and, you know, you just need those five stars to be able to hit. Now, one thing that's interesting with, with the recent announcement of the NCAA giving all of this extra eligibility to people due to COVID-19 is that that's really extending that window, right? So now you have 125 guys you've been able to sign or even 150 if you count red shirts and things like that. And so the probabilities of hitting and the development may actually be more important when you start thinking about that. Um, as far as the Palmetto aspect of it, I, again, I think it's a multifaceted answer. The reality is, is that Mullen needed those guys from Palmetto in order to get his class to a point where it had an opportunity to get within the top 10 in the national rankings. And that's really sort of where he's been the last three years. So, you know, it, from the standpoint of did it make his class better? Yes, it did. But it was really necessary to get his class to a place where, you know, it's been the last couple of years. At the same time, you are starting to open up a pipeline to Miami. And that's a really big deal considering that Florida State seems like the lesser of the two when it comes to recruiting competition within the state. So, again, I think it's it's a little bit six and one half a dozen the other in some aspects, but at the same time, it's a valuable thing to open up a recruiting pipeline into South Florida, especially because of all the talent down there. Sure. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the extra availability and or eligibility rather uh, granted by the NCAA for this season. And uh, we were talking with Ben Murphy earlier and he brought up a, a really interesting point. Um, you know, you've got guys that, potentially could stay. I, I think I made the joke that uh, Kyle Trask might, you know, be able to stick around for his 12th year of eligibility, but uh, he could stick around, but, but does it really uh, help his cause? If he were, if he were a starter this year and he were perceived to be a starter next year, does that help his cause or would it help him to just go on and, and take his shot at the NFL? I mean, I think a lot of it depends on how he plays this year. Obviously, um, you know, with a ten-year or a ten-game SEC schedule, there's not going to be anywhere to hide. So, you know, there's there's not going to be an ability to put up 350 yards against East Tennessee State and then put up 150 against Georgia. The reality is, is you know, you, you come out of the gate with Ole Miss, South Carolina, at Texas A&M and LSU. You know, if Trash plays well through there, then yeah, obviously he needs to take a shot at the NFL. If he's sort of mediocre. Then the question becomes, is Florida better off with somebody like Emory Jones or, or Anthony Richardson or something like that next year? And I think that's one of the things that you're going to be able to see. You know, I mentioned that you've got a higher probability of hitting on four stars, but it also means you have the ability to push people out of the program or at least suggest that they transfer if you've got a guy waiting in the wings who you think is better. And I think that's probably what we'll see a lot of, too is that there will be an opportunity for people to transfer to maybe lower tier, lower level programs um, in 2021 after having played in 2020, because, you know, there's no need to immediately transfer because you're not losing a year of eligibility anyway. Right. Uh, when, when you were just talking about that, I thought of an interesting thing as well. Um, you know, you look at the, just the story of Kyle Trask alone, his, his recruitment, uh, coming up as a backup from high school into D1 and an SEC program, 
and then almost getting a shot to start and getting injured, then almost getting a shot to start and getting injured once again. And then finally last year, fate turns in his favor. He gets, you know, to come in after Felipe Franks. But I was just considering you talking about the 10-game schedule. That means that he's not going to get a full season at all throughout his entire career. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) again, I think most – seasons are 12 games but there may be nine real games sometimes eight this year for florida it was going to be eight um you know where basically you know you're four and oh in those four games and in fact if you lose one of those games the season has gone very 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 wrong um and so the 10 sec game schedule i think is actually more difficult than the 12 game schedule that Florida had on the docket originally, right? I mean, the team, yeah. teams like Eastern Washington have now been replaced by <laughs> Texas A&M. That that's certainly an upgrade. And even even though there was quite a bit of consternation about Florida getting Arkansas rather than Alabama, um, you know, it, Arkansas is still a heck of a lot better team than than some of the cupcakes that Florida was going to have on the schedule. So, yeah, I mean, he's not going to get a full schedule or a full season, but he's going to get a more difficult season yeah, than some he, other quarterbacks have with him. So, yeah, I mean, I think when you think about the next level, that's really what you're interested in if you're a scout, right? I mean, you're going to see what he does against Eastern Washington and say, okay, that's impressive. But what happens when the windows narrow against Georgia, right? Does he go to the right guy? Does he put the ball in the right place? Um, you know, is he able to lead them back? Those sorts of things are the things scouts are going to look at. And, and Trash should have plenty of an opportunity to do that this year. Yeah, I, I think uh, I've said this a couple times uh, now throughout our podcast, but it's still it, – it's kind of funny, you know, uh, you mentioned there's always those gimme games, the cupcake games. And, and I actually saw a conversation taking place on social media a couple weeks back and someone was intending to jab the SEC. And they, they said, well, now the SEC isn't going to get to play any cupcakes this year. But in their attempt at jabbing, they actually admitted to the fact that the SEC has a deep and daunting schedule. I mean, look, anybody who says anything bad about the SEC just needs to look at the NFL rosters, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, at at the end of the day, the rosters are chock full of SEC guys, even programs that have been down, right? I mean, even with Florida struggling under Jim McElwain, even with South Carolina not necessarily being a juggernaut under Will Muschamp, um, you know, you just look at the number of guys who go pro out of these programs, and and it's substantial, and that speaks to the amount of talent that's there now i think you could you could sort of turn it on its face right i I think one of the things you're going to see is clemson if the acc plays is probably going to run roughshod over that league and you might end up with an eight and two or a seven and three champion in the sec because there's just not going to be a saturday you can take off um you know we see that all the time right we talk about trap games and you know there are statistical cases for that and some things that i think maybe indicate we overstate the trap game phenomenon a little bit at the same time there is absolutely something with Florida when they go to Missouri for like an 11 a.m. start. The Gators always struggle in that game. And so if a team is put in a situation like that, you can imagine a scenario where they're going to struggle. You know, So an example would be Florida coming off the Georgia and Arkansas games. Let's say they win both those games. All of a sudden they're at Vanderbilt in Nashville. It's a, it's a Saturday in November, late November. And, you know, if it's 30 degrees in Nashville eh, at 11 in the morning, that's not necessarily a place I want to be if I've already taken down the Georgia Giant. And so those sorts of games are the things maybe where um, in the SEC you can't get away with it, where in the ACC you can. David, you had some questions speaking of scheduling, didn't you? 
Yeah, uh, it was funny you mentioned that. Uh, 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 Kentucky here lately has been a thorn in the Florida side as well, and that, that that's going to have to stop here soon. But, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about the upcoming SEC schedule, especially with you know Kentucky getting better under Mark Stoops, uh, Texas A&M with Jimbo Fisher being added to the schedule, Lane Kiffin coaching Ole Miss, Felipe Frank starting a quarterback for Arkansas, Georgia starting a new quarterback, LSU losing a ton of talent to the NFL, and Tennessee just, well, just being Tennessee. <laughs> being last on the schedule as opposed to the first opponents on Florida's schedule, which opponent do you think this year opposes the biggest threat or surprise on the schedule and why? I mean, the biggest threats are always LSU and Georgia, right? I mean, th- those are teams that are going to have an awful lot of talent, even though they've lost a lot of talent. And Georgia is really one of those where I think their variance is is pretty high based on the quarterback, right? So they're going to have a really good defense. I just don't know whether their offense is going to click with Jamie Newman or JT Daniels or whoever else ends up playing quarterback there at Georgia. I'm not a big believer in Miles Brennan, but at the same time, I'm a big believer in the amount of talent that LSU's brought in. I think they're going to be pretty good. I would say Texas A&M because you know Jimbo has has started to amass some pretty decent talent there, and it's on the road. But we don't really know what on the road means this year. I mean, it might mean 25% fans. It might mean zero fans early in the year at Old Miss at Texas A&M. I think probably you're looking at situations where you don't have a ton of fans in the stands and so they can't impact it, which really then I think leads to that December 5th game at Tennessee. Like that's the one that I look at and say, you know, the Vanderbilt, the Arkansas Vanderbilt, Kentucky, Tennessee stretch is the stretch everybody's going to look at and say Florida's going to be able to exhale. Right. And whenever you tell someone in the SEC that they're going to be able to ex- exhale, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> because even with a team like Tennessee that struggled, I mean, let's be honest, Tennessee, by the time December comes around, usually has their stuff together. It's when Florida plays them in September that they look like a mess. And, um, you know, they're going to be getting them in December. The last time Florida and Tennessee played in December, I was still going to school there. It was not a good time had by Rex Grossman and company that that day. So, um, right. you know, that's the one where I think if the coronavirus is under control, you could see a 50% filled stadium maybe. So all of a sudden it's starting to get loud. You could see a scenario where Florida's coming in needing that game to get to the SEC championship. So there's an awful lot of pressure on them. And you could see a scenario where Tennessee has maybe gotten a lot better from the start of the year to the end of the year um, in a place where Florida hasn't necessarily always caught that because they get them very early in September most years. So it may not be an inevitability that whiteboards will be kicked. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you ask me right now, I'm going to pick Florida to win that game. But, you know, beyond the obvious of saying, yeah, Georgia's the important game on the schedule this year. uh, You know, you mentioned Kentucky. Um, I actually think Kentucky is going to take a step back. I thought it was really impressive what Stoops did last year. Um, at the same time, I think his program, the way it's set up, is going to be a – they're going to be really good maybe once out of every four years, twice out of every four if they're fortunate. And the losses of Benny Snell and and some of the other guys on defense that they've lost over the past couple of years are going to start to show, right, that he, he has not recruited at a level that makes me think he's going to be able to sustain this over year to year. And unless unless the quarterback comes back off the ACL and it's just lights out, I don't think that'll necessarily be the case. The, the schedule really sets up for Florida from the standpoint of Todd Grantham tends to struggle with experienced quarterbacks who can understand the kind of blitzes that he's trying to bring and can exploit it. And the only team on the schedule that has an experienced quarterback with that kind of capability is Tennessee with Guarantano. Now, I'm not sure Guarantano will be starting by the time December 5th comes around, and I'm not sure he's good enough to exploit it. But, again, if you look at if everything hit right for Tennessee, 
it's in Knoxville. That's the one where I'd look at and say, okay, that's a, that's a spot where Florida could potentially get sniped. Yeah. That's, that's the one that really stood out to me. And uh, another thing that I was thinking about that I thought was kind of interesting and unique to this season is how many times can you think of that a head coach has ended up uh, facing a former quarterback in the SEC this many times in their season? Cause uh, in their early career, because uh, year one, Mullen faced uh, Fitzgerald, um, and now he's going to face Felipe Franks. So he, here he's trained up and, and given the skill sets to these guys. Uh, but we saw an obvious drop-off with, with Fitzgerald. Do you think we'll see any kind of a drop-off with Franks, or do you think that uh, it's going to stick with him and he's going to play at a similar level? I mean, I think we're going to see a drop-off from Franks for two reasons. One is that his his teammates are a lot worse. Sure. And two is that Arkansas' schedule is just brutal. And and so from a statistical standpoint and from the – you know, Felipe Franks, when you gave him a pretty clean pocket under Dan Mullen, was a pretty decent quarterback. I'm not going to say he was elite. I'm going to say he was a pretty decent quarterback. And so I think if Arkansas can give him time, he'll be able to replicate that and maybe even move from decent to good. The issue you're going to run into at Arkansas is I'm not sure he's going to get an awful lot of time. And so it's just going to take the Arkansas coach a little bit of time to build up that offensive line. You know, I think they hire that you can see what Arkansas has been doing over the last few years. I mean, they sort of they sort of went off the blueprint, but I thought Bielema was a decent hire for them because it 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 brought around the admission that they're going to have to win on the offensive line in much the same way that can, offensive and defensive lines in much the same way that uh you know that that Kentucky has decided to do under Stoops that they're never going to be a recruiting juggernaut that they're going to need um, you know that they're going to need the um, they're going to need the offensive defensive lines to be strong so you know bringing in this particular coach from Georgia with a uh, you know with a focus on the offensive line so Sam Pittman sorry I couldn't remember his name Sam Pittman bringing in Sam Pittman you know focus on the offensive and defensive lines I think Arkansas is going to be good over time or at least not the bottom dweller that they have been over time, but Felipe Franks isn't going to get to see the uh, the fruits of that. He's going to sort of be setting the uh, – he's sort of the sacrificial duck. Now, you know, with that said, if he does perform really well this year, then I think that gives NFL scouts a lot to look at, look at because it means he's taken inferior talent, he's clearly improved, and against that schedule, you know, you got to give him a shot if you're a scout. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, Jimmy, Jimmy's and Joe's really matter in this situation, obviously. Um, David, what do you think about that? All I know is I'll be cheering on Franks the first week of college football against Georgia. Go, Franks, go. (laughs) You know, I'll be cheering on Franks all year. I I think, uh, you know, he was obviously a polarizing quarterback at Florida. Part of that was because of McIlwain um, and and Nussmeyer putting him, just sort of throwing him to the wolves there as redshirt freshman year. You know, he struggled a little bit, or actually quite a bit, the first six, seven games under Mullen, but after the arc or the Missouri game, you know, came back, um, led the, uh, the comeback against South Carolina, shushed the crowd and all of a sudden was a different player. And if that different player shows up in Arkansas, I think Arkansas is going to be happy with the, what they have. I mean, they're still going to go one and nine. <laughs> it's just a question of whether, <laughs> of whether they get that one 
Um, maybe they pull out a second one, but um, I, I'm not expecting big things from Arkansas. I think it's a break for Florida to get Arkansas on the schedule. But yeah, it's interesting. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, Franks is going to be able to share with his coaching staff some of the things that Mullins taught him. But Franks and Trask are so different. That I that I suspect it'll be a little bit different. That that there's not going to be a whole lot that translates. Oh yeah, absolutely different skill sets. Uh, and, and speaking of the shushing of the crowd, I know that was a you know like you said a polarizing moment, but uh, quite frankly, I, I liked it. I thought it was a a moment where he kind of grew. I, I don't know if I want to say grow grew up, but uh, it was a turning point in my opinion. Yeah, I mean it's always easy to look at that and say it was a turning point because. Um, things got better <laughs> at that point. Um, and, and obviously confidence makes a difference, but you know, you could see Frank's growing over the course of that first year with Mullen. And then it sort of all culminated in the Michigan game. Really? That was the first time I think we went, Whoa, okay. Like now I'm confident for what's going to happen in 2019. And then, you know, there were some uh, questionable throws maybe against Miami um, to start last season, but he was the player the last few games against Florida State and Michigan in, in 2018, he was that player to start 2019. Um, and so I think he'll be that player maybe a little bit better at Arkansas. Again, I, I have a lot of respect for the way Frank's handled the 2017 season. Um, you know, the shushing of the crowd probably is something that you wouldn't tell him to do again. But if that's what he, but if that's what he needed to get everything going, then hey, that's that's as long as Florida's winning, they can they can <laughs> they can call me whatever they want as long as Florida's winning the game. I, I wish them nothing but the best, except for when they come to Gainesville. <laughs> right, and uh, you speaking of shushing the crowd, uh, uh, if, if say he does do not really that great at, over at Arkansas, there won't be that many time, not that many fans to shush him. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, there might not be any fans in the stands anyway to shush. So, um, All right, yeah. Here's here's hoping that by the time that comes, there's some people in the swamp. Right. Correct. Uh, speaking of the quarterbacks, we were just talking about Franks. Uh, out of the returning quarterbacks, based on a production and experience standpoint, uh, Kyle Trask really has a chance to shine this year, especially with another year of experience on the offensive line. Some weapons like Shorter, if he gets his waiver approved, Lingard, along with some experience at receiver with Grimes, and possibly Kadarius Tony if he doesn't opt out, or Jacob Copeland if they don't opt out. There's rumors. Who knows? And uh, a returning tight end, was, who some industries have him as like the number one tight end, Kyle Pitts, returning to college football. Do you expect any kind of drop-off from losing Jefferson, Cleveland, Hammond, Swain, and even LaMichael P. Ryan at running back, who was also great at catching the football in parts of the backfield? Or do you think that Florida can work out the kinks and not lose a step and possibly gain a step in the offense this year? Yeah, I think gaining probably is a little bit um, – that's going to be a tough sell for me. I, I think – uh, Jefferson obviously was a route runner who could get open and that sort of fit Kyle Trask's um, skill set. I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit torn on this one because I think Tony and, and Grimes and Copeland, if they play, um, and then you add shorter to that mix, I think they're probably a more explosive set of wide receivers, but I don't think they're as consistent. And so the consistency of the, of the four guys you mentioned, not only in their route running, but in their blocking. And all the swing passes and all the the throws to P. Ryan work because you've got wide receivers out there who are willing to block. So that's sort of the thing I'd look for early on is not just the guys you mentioned, but some of the, you know, Jamarcus Westons and and the other guy, Jaquavian Frazier's and Xavier Henderson and all those guys who are going to come in as either freshmen or sophomores 
are they willing blockers and do they help clear out space for the running backs? And then can Florida find running backs who can catch the ball out of the backfield to sort of fill that role? Now, some of that I think is going to be filled at the tight end position where obviously you've got Kyle Pitts, but then you've also got Keon Zipper who um, I, I would expect is going to see a larger role in the offense this year. And, and, you know, if you think about what new England, the Patriots did with Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez, I think Florida has more ta- more talent at the H-back slash tight end spot, um, at least established talent, than they do at the wide receiver space. And so you might see them going into, you know, last year was pretty much all 11 personnel, right? One tight end, one running back. I can imagine a scenario where they might start bringing in two tight ends on a more regular basis so that they can, uh, they can exploit some of the talent that they have there. Right, and uh, you mentioned the big body receivers. Uh, just about every receiver, ex- with the exception of Kadarius Tony, pretty look, over two hundred pounds. You know, big, long, and and shorter. Obviously, he's well. I think shorter is like two twenty five, isn't he? I mean, he's a big dude. Yeah, big dude. Uh, I mean, you never know. Like he, sometimes you think the talent's going to drop off, and then sometimes it's even better. Or it could be a lot worse than what you think. <laughs> Well, I think yeah. we saw some flashes from from Jacob Copeland last year. Uh, really, what stood out to me with him was the South Carolina game. I think that may have been his best game uh, all season. Uh, and, and I think I agree with you, Will. Um, the, the consistency of that core group is is really what's going to, in my opinion, make or break uh, their production this year. Uh, Tray- Trayvon Grimes has all the talent, all the skills to do it. Um, will he be able to take on the larger role like Van Jefferson had last season is remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, and if you, if to David's point, if you look back, even at Mississippi state, I mean, some of the best receivers that Mullen had Derunya Wilson is the one that sort of comes to mind. You know, he's six foot five in 13, 14 and 15 with, with Dak Prescott. Um, you know, so it's it's not as though those big guys haven't been productive in Mullen's system. He knows how to get them open, and 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 that I think is maybe the one thing that that gives me some encouragement there. You know, obviously the comparison would be Georgia losing all their wide receivers between eighteen and nineteen, and the way Fromm struggled. But at the same time, the offensive coordinator doesn't necessarily have the track record that Dan Mullen does of spreading the ball around. And one of the impressive things last year was how those four guys, along with Grimes being added in, were as selfless as they were and all okay with basically catching 30 balls and not having anybody be, you know, not having somebody catch 70. And, you know, they were all okay with that. And we'll see if that's the case this year as well. But the fact that Mullen has established that he's going to spread the ball around, I think does mean everybody can remain happy within the offense and also means that if you've got physical limitations or you don't have that short guy in the slot or those sorts of things, you can get away with it because you're trying to dictate to the defense where the ball's going to be thrown anyway. The place where that really starts to become more important or at least the physical skills becomes more important is against a team like Georgia where they just um, you know at the end of the day Georgia's gonna be able to do some things on defense that some other opponents can't and so you're not necessarily going to be able to just scheme guys open you're going to have to beat them sometimes on occasion and and that's where we'll see whether these guys are the explosion that you see in these guys is more important is you know in in against Georgia last year could Van Jefferson get separation? Well, if Grimes can get separation this year in one-on-one coverage, then that's a big upgrade, um, at least in that particular game. And that's, I think, where you'll see maybe the explosiveness play a role. Yeah, the, and speaking of explosiveness and explosive players, uh, as far as special teams goes, obviously we're losing – we lost Freddie Swain. He was the main returner last year. Uh, but 
a lot of those games, like the Georgia game, those close games last year that that Florida, you know, against LSU, uh, that were that were closer than rather than far apart from losing. Special teams really could have helped out if you get like a kick return in there or something like that. Could have really changed the outcomes of some of those games. Do you? Uh, who do you expect to be on special teams returning kicks, or do you expect there to be some kind of change uh, uh, on special teams? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's actually been one of the surprising things since Mullen's taken over. I mean, I was watching the 2006 um, Gamecock block game the other day just out of nostalgia, and um, you know, the thing that you noticed is that essentially Urban Meyer came in and decided that the talented guys, the first level, first team guys, were going to play special teams. You had Brandon James returning kicks. I mean, that guy could run (laughs) with the best of them. You had Percy Harvin sometimes returning punts. You had um, Percy Harvin at running back, right? And then you had all the guys on, on, on defense. Jarvis Moss is the guy who gets the blocks and he's a starting defensive end who ends up playing, ends up being a first round draft pick in the NFL after that season. So that's the thing I think that maybe the recruiting impacts more than anything else is that because you have to make sure those guys stay healthy because you don't have significant depth depth you can't put them on special teams because if they get injured on special teams the criticism will be pretty loud so yeah i mean i don't know that there's going to be a huge change i think the reality is is that thus far there hasn't been a huge emphasis or at least not a huge change the emphasis has been on maintaining field position right freddie swain was in there because he never fumbled the ball because he called fair catches at the right time and because he was going to give them a 10 yard or 12 yard return and set them up in good field position. And that's actually a valuable thing, but it's not Brandon James completely changing the tenor (laughs) of the game by returning a punt. Right. And, and so, you know, I I think Mullen values the stability. He seems to be less of a riverboat gambler than urban Meyer was. I mean, one of the things I forgot in that game was urban Meyer went for it on fourth and one from his own 30 down six (laughs) with seven minutes left in the game. And I haven't seen that level of, of aggressiveness from Mullen yet. He's been aggressive in, cer- in certain cases, but not as aggressive as Meyer was. And I think that sort of goes back to special teams as well, right? There's a risk when you go after a punt. There's a risk when you go after a field goal. And the risk is you're going to get a penalty or the risk is they're going to fake it and you're going to get, and you're going to look stupid. And, you know, that balance has to be, has to be met. And, and thus far, Mullen hasn't really put a ton of emphasis on it. Yeah, that was just a big question for me about special teams. And I'm curious to see what they will do on special teams with Swain gone. Yeah, that's one of the things, again, where those freshmen or the sophomores can really step up, right? That's where they're going to get the ability to contribute. Somebody like Xavier Henderson, who maybe isn't going to get on the field as a starter, at least not early in the year, if you put him back returning kicks and he proves he's going to catch it on a regular basis and make the right decisions, you know, now you've got some explosiveness back there returning kicks. And, and those are the sorts of things that uh, – that, that you'd like to see. But uh, that's the other thing is, you know, you look at Urban Meyer and you say, okay, well, Brandon James is back there. Well, Brandon James was sort of a, uh, a special case in that he was so short, but also that he was so explosive. And then he was just so adept at finding the creases in those returns. I mean, he's probably one of the best return men in college football history. So to say, Oh, just find another, find another Brandon James is a little bit of a tough sell. I mean, obviously he's going to have to replace Swain. Swain was very sure handed. That seems to be the thing that, uh, that Mullen values, right? His values that he's not going to get turnovers. One thing you do notice is that they don't seem to have a lot of block in the black, a block in the back penalties. And those block in the back penalties come from aggressively, um, from aggressively trying to return kicks. And they also come from trying to aggressively block kicks. So it may be that Mullen from a statistical standpoint believes that 
just catching the ball and getting 10 yards upfield is more valuable from a point total than sometimes returning it for a touchdown and then sometimes having a 15-yard penalty that puts you at your own eight, right? And so, you know, I, I actually think that's a pretty decent argument to make in just having a sure-handed guy out there. But, you know, the other thing is is that you don't have to have if you can find somebody who's sure-handed and explosive, then obviously you want to have them back there. Right. Um, and so I'd look at the freshmen, right? I mean, I'd look at Xavier Henderson or I'd look at some of the redshirt freshmen, the wide receivers, and hopefully those guys were getting some reps in practice last year and have the ability to step in and at least be sure-handed on punts, but maybe even add a dimension if they're a little bit more explosive. Right. And uh, it, it, it it's like I said, uh, we don't have Andre DeBose for his like fiftieth year of eligibility back there. So hopefully they figure something out. <laughs> well, they'll they'll have to they'll have to bring him back. Like I, Hunter Renfro was joking the other day about coming back. So when, if, <laughs> if, if if he's back, we got to bring back uh, bring back DeBose. It, it's a free year according to the NCAA. So why not? <laughs> uh, it's it's gonna be a weird year. <laughs> bring back everybody. Hey, I'm all for it. Bring bring, bring back Spike. Harvin said he wants to play in the NFL. Can we get him one year of eligibility? <laughs> yeah. He said he wants to come back to the NFL. Let's, well, let's do it. Get Harvin, let's let's even we'll get Tebow back. Now, nah, Tebow Tebow did all used all his eligibility. Harvin still had one year. Let's uh let's bring him back. Fair enough. A lot of those teammates uh especially on that uh, 2008 National Championship game, they still had a year of eligibility back. You could bring all those people back. Uh, it's funny. That's actually, I think, a mark of a really healthy program at Florida's level is, you know, you, you look at all the returning seniors and you go, okay, that's a really good thing because you've got all that experience. But I, I do think that over time, what you want to see is you want to see a lot of guys leaving as juniors because what that means is you're filling the pipeline with guys to replace them. And it means that, you know, you're getting guys to the NFL, which let's be honest, that that's why people come to your program is, you know, people come to the University of Florida because it's an awesome place and because it's a cool you know, it's a cool environment and, and the football program is really, really good. But at the end of the day, when you're giving these 18 year olds a choice, the reason they're coming there is because they want to get to the pros. Right. And uh, speaking of that, as, as far as like going to the pros, it, it, the incoming freshmen, like uh, you mentioned earlier, Xavier Henderson pro- possibly could be in special teams. If, if you want a freshman player out there trying to, you know, start eventually, it, they always say, you know, you don't want to injure somebody that's that has experience on your team and take a risk of injuring them returning kicks but as far as that goes which player this year do you expect to be a breakout player who has not stepped on the field yet at the university of florida i mean the the easy answer is gravad dexter right the five-star defensive tackle from the 2020 class from lake wales i mean he had some ridiculous numbers in high school for defensive tackles just from the standpoint of tackles and sacks and that's something florida's really been missing over the last few years i mean if you think about grantham's scheme it's a three four you need defensive tackles who can start getting pressure up the middle and one of the reasons why I think Grantham was forced against Georgia last year to play so much zone and not be able to come on a bunch of exotic blitzes. I mean, there were two reasons. One is that he didn't necessarily trust the back end of his defense to not blow a coverage, which obviously we saw when he went on a blitz and then Lawrence Cager was open for the dagger there at the end. But the other reason was is that, you know, they weren't getting a whole lot of push up into the face of the quarterback. And, you know, I'm trying to think back. I can't remember a time recently where Florida was necessarily getting a ton of pressure up the middle. I can remember where they're getting a lot of pressure on the edge, but pressure up the middle has been hard to come by. So Dexter, I think is maybe the guy that you'd look at there. Um, you know, and then the other, the other guy that I think you, you start looking at, or is somebody like Rashad Torrance. So the safeties last year struggled quite a bit. 
Um, I think we can say that. Obviously, they were sort of rotating the four guys in. Um, you know, everybody's got different strengths and different weaknesses, but they all have weaknesses, and, and those showed up at different times along the year. Um, Torrance is a four-star from Marietta, Georgia, six foot, 195 pounds, low-level four-star guy, but from everything that I can gather, a pretty big hitter. And so if he's somebody who can step in and maybe add a different dimension at the safety position, um, I think that might be something that we'd see from the 2020 class where, um, you know, we'd, we'd be happy with uh, with having, seeing him out on the field. And then offensive line, obviously, is one of the places where Florida struggled last year. So a guy like Josh Braun coming in, 6'6", 335 um, from Live Oak, Florida. He's uh, – uh, a big guy got there early, will have put in the classroom work. The question is, will he have gotten the reps that he needs to go out there and be an effective offensive lineman? But, you know, we saw last year with Ethan White that freshmen can come in and excel in Havasi's program, assuming that they're doing the things he's asking them to do. And so we might see that from Braun as well. Uh, speaking of White, he's uh, he's trimmed down even more. Uh, he's added a little bit of strength, and, and they've been working him in, in the center position now. Um which is an interesting move for him. And I think that uh, it might actually be a good, good move there. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think obviously anybody who follows Florida is familiar with the weight loss of, of white coming in. I mean, as a prospect, he was 390 pounds. I think he was probably more than that when he came to campus um, and then saw how much he lost over the off season and then even continued to lose. But, you know, he was also a th- ranked a three-star offensive tackle, um, coming in oftentimes and and this is one place where i think the star rankings do become a little bit difficult to to interpret is oftentimes a guy who's a three-star tackle is somebody who's going to end up playing like a four-star guard i think maybe that's kind of what we saw last year is having him come in the other thing is is obviously you got a guy who's as heavy as he was loses a bunch of weight all of a sudden he's a little bit lighter on his feet and now you've got and now you've got somebody who can uh you know who can come in and make that contribution. But yeah, they're obviously going to have to replace Buchanan at center. And, um, you know, I, again, I, I think you, you look at the tackles and say, those are the guys who are critical to the offensive line. But <laughs> I can remember times where Muschamp was in charge, where getting the snap to the quarterback was difficult. And, and so obviously getting, getting white, um, comfortable there getting him comfortable with the schemes but you know he does seem to have the ability to get some push again you talked about dexter on the other side white on this side you know can you get the push right inside that allows the running back to hit the hole right away um sort of push the defensive line back a yard or two all of a sudden it sets up all sorts of things for guys like emory jones when you're running the read option um you know if, if he doesn't have to worry about someone crashing through the line from the defensive tackle position then um, it's a lot easier to make those read option type of plays yeah, he, he's definitely shown an ability or a willingness to, to work, and he, he seems to have the IQ that's required for uh, for such an important position on the line. Yeah, well, you know, we'll see. I mean, I'm not sure the offensive line can get a whole lot worse than it was last year. So, uh, um, you know, with, with, a, with a significant improvement in line play, that's one of the things, you know, we talked about Trask earlier here, but one of the things I think we're going to see is that the um, – Trask's numbers probably are going to go down, especially if the offensive line is better, just because they're going to give the ball to the running back more often, in part because of the schedule aspect too, right, is that you need to keep everybody healthy. And if you can put the ball on the ground, shorten the game, and and get out with a win, um, that's going to be more valuable than necessarily putting up style points against Tennessee or against Missouri or Vanderbilt. So does that mean you're saying that we won't see the the Burrow leap from, from Kyle Trask this season? I, mean, I think he's going to get better, but I, I think the Burrow leap was – there are a few things there. I mean, obviously I was high on Burrow 
when he was transferring. Um, and he made me look like a fool the first year he was there. And then he made me look brilliant the second <laughs> year he was there. And, and I think the Burrow leap came from a couple of things. One, obviously, is the Joe Brady effect coming in and, and impacting that offense there. The other is, is that Burrow has a tra- had a track record in high school and even at Ohio State in his limited time there of not only being a really accurate quarterback, but being able to push the ball down the field. And I, I think I think Trask has similar skills, but I don't think he's as skilled. And you can see that in terms of um, Trask completed something like 67% of his passes last year. And Burrow in the 2018 season completed like 56% of his. And then last year was up something ridiculous, like 73, 74%. So the reality is, is that there's not a whole lot of room for Trask to improve in his accuracy, which means he's going to have to go downfield more often. In 18, Burrow went downfield a lot, wasn't very accurate. In 19, all of a sudden, he was a lot more accurate, still going down the field, and so you have an explosive offense. So, again, I think Florida's – I think Trask will be better. I think he's probably going to go downfield more often. The question is, is that going to come with an increased level of accuracy? The one feather in his cap is that he was really good on third downs. So, I I wrote an article maybe three, four months ago about Kellen Mond and you know people were hyping him up and and i just don't see it because on third downs he was he was just terrible at third and 10 plus he completed something like 25 percent of his passes and you know three yards an attempt or something like that and trask was the exact same quarterback on second and long and third and long that he was on first and 10 it was basically averaging something like 8.2 8.3 yards per attempt completing 65 to 70 percent of his passes and so if you think about what's going to be required to move the chains to keep the team moving down the field, that's not going to go away. So Florida with Trask in, in behind center, I think is still going to be good, but no, I don't think, I mean, Burroughs leap is a once in a generation thing. One, I don't think you want to count on it. And two, I don't think it's the same statistical profile. Sure. I think that's a excellent point and a good analysis of the situation. Uh, Will, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for taking time out to join us on our podcast. And uh, we look forward to hopefully having you back again in the future. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Best of luck with the podcast and hope, hope to see it grow and, and uh, enjoy seeing you guys, particularly considering how much you've supported me at Read and Reaction and, and with Gators Breakdown. Really just sort of appreciate all the support you've given us. And so, uh, you know, happy to, happy to pay it back. Uh, on that note, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you at on, on Twitter and, and everywhere else? Yeah, if you want to tell me an idiot, or if you want to call me an idiot, the best place to find me is on Twitter, at Will Miles SEC. <laughs> um, you can find me at my website, readandreaction.com. And then uh, I'm a co-host on the Gators Breakdown podcast with David Waters. So you can catch me over there, too, if you want to hear me in this type of forum on a more regular basis. So we do uh, you know, pregame, postgame analysis, that sort of stuff during the season. And looks like we're going to have games, so it'll be, it'll be fun coming up in about a month or so. I'm excited. Next time we have you, we'll hopefully be able to actually – talk about uh, the previous week's games right. well i hope so some new film to break down will be fun yeah <laughs> yeah i can't wait for the games man all right well <laughs> thanks man for joining us on the gridiron growl man all right thanks a lot for having me guys all right see you and that was mine and your good buddy will miles from gators breakdown and read and reaction.com it's always uh, it's always an enjoyable experience when will miles is on a podcast yeah i always have uh great conversations with him of course we we did uh, own the fourth quarter together last season. Um, the thing I love about Will is he has such an analytical mind, and he's able to use that to break down statistics in a way that most people don't. And 
even though they don't necessarily think that way, he's also able to present it in a way where everybody is able to follow what he's saying and understand it. Um, Will always has great takes. Right. It, 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 there's been a lot of times where I've read his one of his articles or I've listened to him on Gators Breakdown where I would think differently about him on a certain subject, but then he would come back and explain his way of thinking and how he thinks about it. And I would be like, man, I didn't really think about it that way. Now, now he's kind of changed my mind a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Uh, just like with anybody, you know, I, I don't agree with Will on a hundred percent of subjects, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for him. And, and like you said, he, he doesn't just come from something based on his feelings. It, you know, it's, Take recruiting. We, we mentioned earlier, you know, he, he's come up with some very compelling arguments for why it's important for Dan Mullen to get these top 100 players, get these four and five star players, uh, despite the fact that he's able to make a three star blossom into essentially a four star or fi- a four star into a five star once they're at the program. Um, the reason for that is you look at the teams that are winning championships on a consistent level and their rosters are basically packed with NFL caliber talent. And I don't care how good of a developer you are. If you're going up against a team that's two and three deep with NFL future NFL stars, eventually that talent gap is going to get you. Right. And, and look at teams like Alabama and Clemson. Uh, if say if a player gets hurt or injured the uh, immediate another five star just jumps into the game as opposed yeah, to exactly. uh, yeah as opposed to like if we lose a player uh, well we might have somebody from the top one hundred or that's a five star that can come back in and be an immediate impact player or oh well we 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 hope he got developed at all uh, like we're we're sitting there hoping not and that's not shying away from any player on the team obviously because if they're doing the things that they're supposed to do and they're getting developed by the coaches like they are. They're obviously going to be able to produce when they're on the field, but it's very good to have that kind of cushion when if a player gets hurt, somebody else can step up in the game and you're not really worried about losing that game at that point. Right. Now you, you look at, you know, Kyle Trask is a perfect example there. You know, he, he'd been in the program long enough and I'd seen enough of him behind the scenes where I was confident about what he could do once he was pushed into that starting role. Uh, but, you know, the vast majority of people, they're in that situation you're talking about. They're like, okay, I, I hope he's the next Willie Beeman. Uh, yeah. sh- shameless any given Sunday plug there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the reality is that in most cases, you're not going to get that. You're, you're going to get someone who the moment is too big for them. Even if they grow into it over time, uh it's not likely that you're going to get someone that, that does what, what Kyle Trask did. You know, he came in, uh, what was he down 11 or 14 points? I don't remember what it was in that Kentucky game late in the game. And, and he mm-hmm. took over I yeah. mean, he, he brought him back on the road and, uh, he played one of the best seasons that we've seen from a Florida quarterback, uh, since Tim Tebow. Right. If you look at the 2018 season, uh, Dan Mullen's first year with, uh, Missouri was just clobbering us. Um, they, they brought in Kyle Trask and you saw some sort of a spark on that offense that you didn't see with Felipe Franks. And that's not saying, you know, not, not shying away from Felipe Franks or anything, but you saw it and you got the, you got the feeling of maybe this guy might win the starting job. He's doing pretty well. And then he gets hurt. And 
as far as you're talking about, like the like he was a two star quarterback back up in high school and all that. I, and I feel with quarterbacks, I don't really look at their star ranking. Uh, uh, really, uh, to be honest, like as far as a quarterback goes, you just have to be able to know your scheme and have a great mind. Have a great mind to know where the football's got to go, where it's got to be delivered to, and you, obviously you got to have the arm strength. You can't be floating balls up in the air that are going like one mile an hour and it gets intercepted, but. You also got to have the mind for the game. You got to have a great mind in knowing where your receivers are going to be on this side of the field, that side of the field, and being able to uh, when the pressure's on, uh, if you're if, if they're blitzing or you're getting blitzed, you know where you can dump it off uh, quick to somebody or throw it out of bounds and and not take a sack. Yeah, an adequate quarterback can get out there, find a receiver, get it to him under some pressure. A good quarterback can can you know make plays even when under pressure. He can throw accurate balls. Uh, he can communicate well with his his team. Correct. An elite quarterback or or a you know really special quarterback, you know someone like Tim Tebow or Joe Burrow last year, uh, they can elevate the play of everyone around them. And right. so, uh, you know, it, it's hard to find that guy. Uh, you're not likely going to find him in a, a two-star backup role in high school, but, uh, you know, stranger things have happened. That said, uh, I think Will brings up an excellent point when it comes to recruiting. Uh, he's, he's, like you said, changed your mind there. Uh, to some extent, he, he changed my mind from the way I look at recruiting uh, several years ago because he was able to lay out the numbers and be like, okay, you know, this is what it looks like, but when you actually – step back and you, you take a look at the numbers uh, over the past decade at all the teams who have, who have been to the highest level uh, and the amount of te- uh, players that they're sending to the NFL and their recruiting classes, you know, the, the numbers are pretty clear. You know, they're, they're going to bring in uh, average talent rankings of, you know, 93, 94. Yeah. Um, and they're going to send, you know, 10, 11, 12 guys to the NFL each season. Right. And you mentioned that. And, and I believe it was Will Miles or Bill Sykes. Uh, I remember listening to a podcast from one of them a, a while back. And they said, all the national championship winners, if you average their recruiting classes that year, came out to a 4.2 star. Yeah. That's 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 a lot of depth and a lot of talent. So uh, it, it, it does. You you. You have to have the development, obviously, but you have to have the talent as well. And we're starting to see now Dan Mullen starting to climb. Now, when McElwain was head coach, obviously the recruiting was was very, very poor. Very poor. And McElwain wasn't a recruiter. But uh, he, he went with grape jelly when clearly he needed strawberry preserves. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, he, he did jump in a pool one time, and then he got fired that year. So... <laughs> uh, he, he may or may not have jumped on a shark. Right. <laughs> but um as as far as as far as the recruiting goes, like we mentioned Jim McElwain and his recruiting. Uh man, as far as when Dan Mullen stepped on the field, we weren't seeing the we weren't even seeing top one hundred players coming to Florida. But once Dan Mullen took charge, he was able to wrap up Jacob Copeland and unfortunately he was able to wrap up Justin Watkins who got into some trouble and got in some serious trouble and can't play football probably still in jail right now but he got into serious trouble but he was able to reel in some of those top 100 talents in a transition year from a coach so that already told me well and maybe he's already got an impression on some of these elite recruits now I remember when Jim McElwain was coach 
I couldn't watch the Under Armour All-American game. And you know why? Because none of our players are playing it. <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, Mullen brought in the, uh, the number 14 class on the transitional class, which is pretty spectacular. Um, each of the last two classes have been top 10. So, you know, he, he's getting there. You know, I, there's been a lot of unrest with the fan base and some of it uh, deservedly so. And, and some of it, I think, maybe a little bit, a little bit impatient. Um, but yeah, we're starting to see the fruits. You know, we've, we've shown results on the field, you know, 21 wins in the last two seasons. And he's developed relationships, not just with the players, but with the, the coaches at these high schools, um, with their families. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't get. It takes time to develop these relationships and form these roads that lead to the elite recruiting. Now, you know, you might make the argument, well, what about Kirby Smart? He did it in year two. Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't really know how to, how to defend that. Uh, but what I can say is look at what Mullen does with the talent he gets once he's got it versus Kirby. You know, he, he's got a lot of five stars transferring out of his program and he, yeah, he's gotten to the SEC championship twice. He's been to the national championship, but he hasn't won that. Uh, you know, so he, he's still coming up just short, even with that NFL talent. I guarantee you, you put NFL talent like that on a Dan Mullen roster, and you're going to be hoisting some crystal. <laughs> right. And it, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just about to say that I think I think the reason why a lot of fans uh, aren't patient and they get frustrated is because they know if Dan Mullen had that kind of talent, <laughs> we would be winning national championships. And I think that's part of the frustrating part of it. And, as far as like going back to recruiting, it's slowly but gradually getting better. We, you, but like you said, we have to be patient. It's uh, I didn't expect Jason Marshall, uh, Corey Collier. People kind of were expecting that, but you know, you had those people out there. Oh, Dan Mullen's going to fail on this one and all that. And surprisingly, landed both Jason Marshall and Corey Collier. So that's a big feather in the cap for Dan Mullen right now in the recruiting world. And it's obviously, you know, if. if you pay any attention to Twitter and any of the recruits that are on Twitter, they're noticing that. Uh, like we were talking about last week, Tunisia Adelier. If I said his name right, I'd probably butchered it again. But uh, he took to Twitter. He's taken to Twitter. Uh, Xavier Sori, Savian Collins uh, is starting to notice it. There, the, the, some people are predicting he may flip for Miami. We'll see. But Dan Mullen's starting to get a voice out there now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the recruiting world. And uh, obviously, you know, with this season, it's like you were talking about the Joe Burrow leap from Kyle Trask. Uh, and the, you, y'all were talking about how, well, Kyle Trask doesn't do this like Burrow does or anything like that. But another thing that uh, Burrow did that was really good is his escapability was really good. He could actually, he could run. He wasn't, the, he obviously wasn't a four or five or four six runner. But he had a, he had a little bit faster legs than Kyle Trask, and his escapability is what extended plays and helped him get the balls to his receiver further down the field and made the defense put the defense on their toes and made them maybe scoot up to where the receiver was open, like Jamar Chase or something like that. And, and that's how they were able to score a lot of points last year as well. Yeah, I, I look at Kyle as far as the the mobile ability of Kyle Trask. He's a lot like a Peyton Manning. Um, yeah, yeah, he, he's gonna run when he absolutely has to and it's going to be ugly but it can be effective sometimes 
Right. And like I said, it'll be interesting to see what Kyle Trask does this year. Obviously, if he replicates his production and our running game gets going, uh, we have a good chance of not even losing the game, to be honest, uh, depending on how Georgia how Georgia is. And even Texas A&M. Does Mon take another step? I'm not sure he could. But, you know, it's like I said, it'll be interesting to see what Kyle Trask does this year for the University of Florida and how the offensive line will improve. So it's like I said, can't get any worse. 122nd in the nation last year. So I, I hope it don't get any worse than that. <laughs> well, David, uh, this is uh, episode four. Episode four, man. It's been a, a long journey for us this last month. Uh, no, but we, we've got a, a lot more to come, and, and I'm really excited about the way this thing's moving. I really am too, and uh, you know, I, the, so far four episodes, we've interviewed some great people. Uh, had a lot of guests on that you know took time out of their day to come join us on the Gridiron Growl Podcast, and I want to thank all those guests so far on the Gridiron Growl Podcast. And next week, we got some more exciting guests as well. Yeah, and I'd like to also take a moment to thank each and every one of you who are listening to us. Right, correct. And if you know any Florida Gator fans that are diehard Gator fans, please share this podcast with everybody. We are on Apple Podcast, uh, Spotify, SoundCloud, basically any form of podcast that's out there. We are pretty much and, on those platforms. And on the website, chomptalk.com. Chomptalk.com. So, uh, David, you know what they say. In all kinds of weather. We stick together, but... But we also keep it together. Keep it together is right. I would like to thank Ben Murphy and Will Miles for joining us on this episode of the Gridiron Growl Podcast from Chomp Talk. I also want to encourage everyone to share this podcast with your fellow Gator friends and family and join us for next week's episode of the Gridiron Growl Podcast. So until then, folks, stay safe, stick together, and keep it together. 